Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. James, turn over to the epistle to the Romans as well, Romans, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And this is Romans chapter 5 is where we'll conclude this morning at. We'll start in James 1. And so two passages, Romans 5 and James 1. Uh, this morning, um, our title of our, our message this morning that's in the bulletin is, What Does God Want From Me? What Does God Want From Me? And that's a question. And so I thought we'd start this morning. That's a heavy question. It's a big question. In fact, it's a timeless question. And it's a question that in one portion is so simple, yet to another end, um, it has great depth to it, to which one could contemplate for a significant portion other times. Some questions in life are, uh, are simple. Like, for instance, if I was to say, raise your hand if you're too hot right now. Okay. <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> raise your hand if you're too cold right now. If you're just fine. So all of you like that one bear in a story, right? It was just right, little Goldilocks and all. We could raise hands and say, well, how many are hungry? How many are full? How many like onions? How many like Brussels sprouts? Some questions in life, just they, they like gravitas. Um, I'll tell on myself for a moment, but I have four sisters. And I'm the only son. And we sometimes get in group text, and it did not take my sisters long to realize that it would be best for them just to have five girls in the group. And so they adopted my wife, and she now tells me what they're doing. Because they're group text, and they're talking and asking questions, and I'm not great at responding to those because I don't value them as I ought to value. Not my sisters, I mean the questions. Some questions, there's just no real value to them. I, I don't understand them. But the question that we're talking of this morning, what does God want from me, is not only a weighty question, but it's one that every man, every boy, girl, lady, everybody has to be able to have not only an answer, but the right answer. Um, in high school and college, I used to really like those essay questions because there was no real right answer. They're rather testing to see if you have the substantive answer. And so you could put little or more and you could get partial credit if you got close. But when you come to answering the question, what God wants from me, it's a precise answer. And it's an answer that everyone has to have the right answer on in this life that we lead. But if we're going to speak on what God wants from me, we first have to be on really a common level on this, this question, and that is, who is God? Because there's a lot of things that go on today and have gone on pretty much since the dawn of humanity in the Garden of Eden, trying to define who, what, when, where God is. And so ultimately it comes down that really <clears throat> today, and this has often the case, God is the express imagination this is one definition I'm speaking of, that God is the express imagination of my own heart. Really, if you will, he's what I feel he ought to be. So I can make him this or that. I can give him this power or that power. And then a grandiose beyond that is the idea that really says that there is no God. And really, I ascribe all of the attributes about a God to my own self. So who is God that we speak of? When we look into the scriptures, there's a number of gods mentioned in the scriptures. There is, for instance, the pagan gods of old. 
In Joshua chapter 24, he, he commands the children of Israel, he said, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Are you going to serve the gods that were before the flood? Are you going to serve the gods of the Amorites? Who are your gods that you're going to serve? And a number of those ancient gods of antiquity are listed like Baal and Ashtaroth and Dagon and there's so many others that are present. So there's the pagan gods that exist. We could speak of gods as the scripture does and speak of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where it uses the, the phrase the God of this world in reference to the demonic power that has blinded the eyes or the rather the hearts of them that believe not that they might not see the glorious gospel of our Savior. So to what God are we speaking of? And for our purpose this morning, the direct focus when we ask the question what God wants from me, the God we're speaking of is the one true God, the God of the Scriptures. And really, when it comes to speaking of the God of Scriptures, uh, myself nor anyone else has any authority to ascribe any attribute, trait, desire, focus, anything to God that is not expressly mentioned in the Scriptures. After all, there's only a few ways that we know things of God. Because God is distinct from you and I. We are part of Adam's race. We are part of what humanity, if you will. And God is not. So if we're going to wander and peruse the thoughts of the high God of heaven and have an understanding of who he is and what attributes and what he wants, etc., We've got to realize there's only a few ways in which he has revealed, that's the technical word, himself to humanity. Now, in one sense, he's revealed himself through creation. And so we can look at certain aspects in creation and see a number of things about the attributes of God. I can see that he's a God of order and not chaos. Of course, I, um, this is my favorite time of the year. We had uh, some church family that just came back from vacation. They were down south. And you know what it is down south? It's hot. And you know what it is up here? Except for today, it's going to be a little warm today. But we're getting into September, and it's going to be cool. And we're getting the 50-degree temperatures overnight. You can take your window units out. You can put your fans in. The climate is perfect. Why doesn't that happen in the middle of summer? Why in winter don't we have 100-degree days? Ultimately, you can ascribe it to humanity or you can ascribe it to science, but the reality is it's nature's God has set it in order. In Galatians, he speaks, or rather Genesis, of the seasons. We can look at the nature around us and see that he's a God of infinite order, of infinite concern. But the primary way in which he has revealed himself to you and I is through the word of God. The scriptures were supernaturally given to man. Peter speaks about this, holy men of God writing as they were moved to the scriptures. It has perfect unity, though it has among itself some 40 different uh, authors which God uses, if I can refer to it that way, 40 different men that God moved upon to write his words, and their time or chronology spans 2,000 years. There's great unity between them. Peter never contradicts Paul. Paul never contradicts James. James never contradicts Moses. They quote each other. They borrow, if you will, because the author ultimately is divine. We speak of the Word of God. We can say that from a historical point of view, it is reliable. 
If you looked at the Word of God just on par as any books of antiquity, there is nothing close to the level of accuracy and genuine expression that the Word of God has. For centuries, there were kingdoms mentioned only in the biblical text and nowhere else to be found. And historians would say, well, that is because they never existed. And then at once, as they began to study and to dig through archaeology, guess what? They found them to be present. The Bible, if nothing, if you look at it as anything else, you'd have to say it was remarkable because it is historically reliable. When you look at the Word of God and you esteem it as the God-given Word, it has perhaps one of its greatest testimony. It's the transforming power that it produces in those that adhere to it. It changes societies. It's a remarkable thing about the Western world. It's grand and remarkable. In fact, most of us here, as you consider so much as what is culturally, quote-unquote, America, where did that come from? I watched a little cartoon the other day from 1957. It's probably the only cartoon they had in 1957, come to think of it. But it was a little cartoon. It was fascinating. It talked about what an American was. This is 1957. What it meant to be an American. It was a way of instruction and to teach children and things of that nature. And you know, it talked about to be an American is not to be a, a specific, if you will, race. That's marvelous, isn't it? Because it isn't. American is a great, at its essence, an identity of law and focus and order. It's quite interesting, as we heard in the Sunday school hour, so it is Christian. And among ourselves, we have a whole number of people from different backgrounds that adhere and believe the same truths around the Word of God. The remarkable point of the Word of God is how it transforms individuals and to one sense, society. And any society that has adhered to the Word of God as the basis of its law and society is transformed distinctly from other societies. There's no other work that has that influence. It is God's record to man regarding who God is, what God wants, and what man must do. You're in James chapter 1. Let me give you maybe five things quickly about God. For if we're going to know what God wants, you have to have that identity as we've looked at who God is. But you've got to have the understanding of what God at his source is. Now, this particular text in James chapter 1 is not exhaustive. Meaning we're not going to look at every attribute of God from Genesis to Revelation. We're not going to look at all of them. I just want to point five of them out in the text that we read a moment ago. Note them, if you will, in verse number 13. He says, James 1 and verse 13, Let no man say... When he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither what? Tempteth any man. So there's an attribute about God that we can pull from this, and that is this. God, number one, and this is a preeminent attribute, God is holy. If you want to write with it, you could talk about the fact that God is without sin, that God is without error. That makes him distinct from humanity. Anything that you're going to ascribe to God must start with the precipice that he is a holy God. Notice the second thing in verse 14. He says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. 
So I'll give you a second thing here about God, and that is this. God is distinct from humanity. Not even a man can be considered as an individual good when compared to God. Man is God's creation, yet man has a choice, a decision to be made with his life and actions. And according to this passage, when a man is tempted, he has a choice to make on whether he's going to succumb to this temptation or not. Ergo, man is not holy. Man can choose to do wrong. There's a third thing related about God. He is holy. He is not man. Note the third one here in verse number 15. He talks of this, and this is a reference of man. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. I would note that the attribute of death does not apply to God since God is holy and without sin. So it does give us a third attribute of God, and that is this. God is eternal. Colossians has so much to say about this. He is the God of the pre-existent past. We speak of the sense of future as that that always builds upon itself and will go on indefinitely, eternity future. But there's also eternity past. God is always existent. That's what it means to be eternal. He is without the constraints of time. I read an article this morning. I wish I had paid a little bit better attention to it. I could have shared some of these details with you. But this lady, um, she met her great, great, great granddaughter. A seven, think about that. Seven generations. She is the oldest American. Or I should say she is the American that had lived the longest. She died in 1999 at the age of 119 years and they were able to document it they had marriage certificates all of this kind of stuff and uh just a little plug here she's from pennsylvania that's pretty amazing all these generations yet when you look at such an advanced year of 119 years what does that compare to in light of a thousand years or of two thousand years We speak of God. He far transcends 120 years, 119 years. He is eternal. Note in verse number 16. Every good gift and every perfect gift. Oh, I missed verse 16. Let me give you another attribute in verse 16. In verse 16, he admonishes the believer there. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. I would note of this, there's a warning about erring. What does that mean? That means to go the way in which you know you ought not do. And he warns, James is, through his message here, he's warning other believers, don't succumb to temptation and do that which transgresses God's desires in your life. Don't err. Why? Well, implied in this is a fourth attribute that you find throughout scriptures, and that is this, God is just. Because he is holy, he's just. That's a terrible thing to consider in one regard because that means he cannot actually have the capacity to overlook sin and evil. That's what it means to be just. You and I are familiar with evil that exists in society. I mean, you don't have to read the newspapers too often and you hear of crimes being perpetrated and shootings and harms and evil. And can you imagine one of those comes before a magistrate and the magistrate said, well, I'm not going to punish this individual even though they did wrong because I'm simply their best friend. 
What would we say about that? We say, man, we want to pull your papers. We're going to make sure that you're disbarred. Why? Because the one characteristic that a judge must have is he has to be a man, a woman of justice, doing that which is right. And so it is said of God that he loves justice. And then finally, this fifth attribute that we find in verse number 17, he he speaks of every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom into variableness nor shadow of turning. And I'll give you a fifth attribute here about God, verse number 17, and that is this, God is good. Sometimes your and my own perspective gives us variance to the definition of what good means. I mean, that's especially true of time, right? You might would have a parent look at their little child and say, it's a good thing for you to eat your vegetables. But then the child would look at the parents and say, have you tried these nasty things? Perception at that one time defines good. The child would look at that and say, vegetables aren't good. The parent, with the experience and the time, would say what? Well, let me rephrase that. A parent would say it, they may not believe it, but they would say it, it would be a good thing for you to get. You're going to get way more minerals and vitamins and nutrition out of these than you will all the desires of your heart. But when we speak of that which is good, it's defined by God and it extends the breadth of humanity and it's coupled in with God's divine holiness. If you're going to ascribe a wondrous attribute to God, it is that God is good. Now, time will not allow for all of this, but I will tell you, it's, this is one of the most misunderstood attributes of God. Because you and I have experienced things that are not good in this life. It's what makes us distinct from the Godhead in a sense. To be part of humanity means that we're not eternal, and that means that we have a temporary existence. Yours might be longer than mine. Mine might be longer than yours. But in the whole of it, it's temporary. Part of being humanity, part of existing in this regard, it means that we're going to have a troubled existence. What do you mean by that? I mean there's difficulty in life. Job, that ancient book, just before the Psalms, which is in the center of your Bible. Job says that the troubles of life, they're like the sparks that fly upward. Said that the, man, the, the days of a man born to woman are short and full of trouble. I mean, speaking of those questions, without elaborating, I mean, if we raised our hands and said, how many of you have some trouble in this life? Nearly every hand's going to go up. Your trouble may be distinct from mine, it may be similar, but nevertheless, there's going to be difficulty in this life. And there's a number of reasons that difficult things happen. Sometimes the difficulty is the God of this world. He's tempting his influence. He's using the positions that men and women put themselves in and he tempts them, trying to get them to be condemned under an almighty God and it is not hard work at all. For they readily pursue those things in this life. It's a very easy thing to do that. You look at the trouble of this life and it might just be a natural consequence of life. People get sick. People are born with deformities. People die what we would consider a premature death. Those are trouble. We we have grief. 
But the expression here in verse 17 is wonderful. God is good. I mean, for a child of God, someone that has faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we could even have a difficult time bringing this juxtaposition to a close. How can God be good if if tough and, and horrible things happen? Because God has a sovereign plan. Because there's a purpose. A purpose that sometimes my finite mind cannot fully grasp. But a troubled existence is part and parcel of being a member of humanity. Look at Romans chapter 5. I'll give you a third aspect of humanity as as it just kind of intersects with the distinction of who God is. Humanity has a temporary existence as opposed to eternal. Humanity has a troubled existence. I mean, to think that God is good and God is only good, that has not, nor will it ever be said of humanity. I mean, if we could say of humanity that humanity was good always, think how that, if that were a truth, think how it would revolutionize your life. You you would not need security systems, locks on your doors. I I went somewhere once and I have this door that uh, I got it repaired, but it, it, it didn't shut on the jam right. And I was in a hurry, and my wife and, and my wife had left, and some of the all the children were gone, and I was the last one out the house. This is all my fault. And I was in a hurry, and I locked the door, and I pulled it to, and I jumped in the car, and I took off. And I never thought about it again. But I beat everybody home. And we were gone maybe about 12 hours. And when I pulled under my carport, you know what I found out? The door didn't latch. The wind blew, and it was hung wide open for 12 hours. You know what goes through your heart? Do I have anything left in my house? And the answer to the question I'll give you, nothing was missing. And there was no genie that came in and cleaned the house while I was gone. And none of my neighbors even came over to close the door. I don't maybe they didn't see it. But humanity, you, you feel that story and you say, well, it, you're lucky. If the right person, you'd be absolutely right. Why? Because when we look at humanity, we cannot truly ascribe goodness to humanity. In one sheer form of the definition, we might describe it to some individuals, and Romans does that. You're in Romans chapter 5. Look, if you will, I think it's verse number, uh, verse number 7. He doesn't use the word good. He uses the stronger word righteous. But he talks of, for scarcely for a righteous man would one dare yet preadventure for a good man. Some would even dare to die. There's the word. You could say of humanity in one broad moral sense that there are good people. I have some good neighbors. In the essence, for the best ascribed morality of humanity, there are individuals that do that. I have neighbors that if knew I had need, they would aid me to. They're not righteous in the sense of child of God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about morally upright. Goodness is a sense to ascribing to the best possible in human society. They're honest. I saw a lady this week in the news. Um, I don't think it was local to us, but she went to KFC to get some chicken. She went through the drive-thru. She got her bag. She briefly looked in there. Everything was there. She went home. When she got home, she started unpacking it. 
When she got down to the last box, she pulled it out and there was a stack. Do you see this? There's a stack of cash. $563 worth of cash. In the bottom of that bag. I don't answer this question. But what would you be tempted with evil there? That's the best drive through deal you could get in America right there. I think some of you don't even like chicken. You'd be up for that one. Man, KFC inflation fighters, you know. And she looked at it. She called the authorities. She took all the money back. Later to find out by that good deed, she had saved the manager on duty's job. That was the cash till. And the manager was in a hurry. Didn't pull the door shut. Set it down in a bag so that other eyes, afraid that, you know, if she set it on the counter or he set it on, I don't know who they were, but if they just set it in front of the eyes, somebody else would be a sleight of hand. So they put it in a bag and slid it to the side quickly. And someone else saw her do that, thought she had put a sandwich in it, and they packed the order. It was an honest mistake. You know why those type stories strike a chord in our heart? Because they don't happen every day. But God is distinctly different. His goodness towards humanity happens every day. Why? Because we're not good, because we're not holy, because we're not just. And because of that, we have set ourselves, whether we would admit it or not, under the judgment, condemnation is the biblical word of God. And yet God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. There are divine blessings that God has sent in the life of every individual. And yet sadly, sometimes we feel that we're so much better than we really are. We're in Romans chapter 5, and, and I mentioned the distinction between righteous and good. But let me point out a couple of descriptions of the natural man as God sees them. So our question that we still have not answered, what does God want from me? We're drawing close to it, but here's a question. What is God's relationship to me? Look in Romans chapter 5. I just want to point out maybe, maybe four or five words here. We would like to think that we would be the woman with $563 return. And that would be my hope for all of us, right? That would be my hope for all of us. Don't lie in church. Our hope for all is we'd be the good neighbor. But see, there's a distinction. I look at you and you look at me. We size people up and say, boy, I think they're a good person. But that's not how God is. Remember, he's eternal. He's holy. He's omniscient. He doesn't abound within the scopes of time. Do you get my picture? Now he's going to give us five descriptions. And every member of humanity's race can be ascribed to these five things, and God's going to reveal them to us. Notice, if you will, verse number six. For when we were yet without strength. That's the first mark there. When God sees us, we like to think of ourselves as strong. Strength, the scripture says. The pride, the glory of a young man is his strength. What he can do, how fast he can run, how strong he is. I saw all these wonderful feats that can be done. But we're never really strong enough because really when it comes to this idea of strength, it has the idea of feebleness. 
And humanity has no ability to pardon themselves. Humanity has no way to, to really right the wrongs that we have committed. Humanity, we have no way in which to approach a holy God. We're deficient in the level of holiness without strength. He moves on in the same passage. Christ died for the ungodly. When God looks at humanity, he said, you're the opposite of me. In the 14th Psalm, the psalmist writes that the Lord looked down upon the sons of men and said, if there were any that were good. And he said of that, no, not one. What? I mowed my neighbor's grass. I helped my neighbor. I was kind. And God said, in reference to my holiness, it's not good enough. Ungodly. He uses another word to describe us later in the chapter. He says in verse number 8, while we were yet sinners. That word sinners is an interesting word. It means to come up short. It's a terrible aspect really to consider. That my best wasn't good enough. In my youth, when I played basketball, we'd have a coach and he would always say, go do your best. We'll win if you do your best. He was a liar. You know why? Because doing our best was just not as good as the team that was better at every position. They were taller, faster, jump higher, and shoot better. We needed them to do less, way less than their best and us to do our best. We barely won more games and we lost. If I can put that in a sense of God's relationship, our best just isn't good enough. We've transgressed the law of God. We've come short of His glory. He gives another expression there in verse number 10, and this is potent. Verse number 10, he says, For if when we were what? Enemies. Verse number 10, enemies. I'm in opposition to God. I don't know that I would have described myself as being an enemy to God, but in reference to humanity, not righteousness, and God's righteousness, or God's holiness and man's unholiness, the one thing I will say is, I like to do the things that I do, even if I know they're wrong. That is the very mark of an enemy. We would talk about worldwide events and wars and things of that nature. When one society opposes themselves against another society on a field of conflict or a battle, they would refer to each other as enemies. And such is how God describes himself in humanity. Yes, I oppose myself against God. Why? Because I have rejected his holiness. I have said that he is not my commander. He is not my authority. He is not my head, leader, if you will. Who is? Me. I am my own God. Verse number 19, he uses a final one, and it's akin to the one in verse number 9. He says disobedience. It's used again in Romans chapter 10. When we, when we think of goodness, we're never nearly as good as we really think, our are, uh, think we are. We are by our own actions and by our own choices destined to death and condemnation under the wrath of a holy God. 
Now our human nature comes and asks us this question, how's that fair? I'm not as bad as this person over here. I may not be as good as this person, but I'm not as bad as this person. I would note when it comes to this matter of salvation and goodness and holiness, that's how we like to think. That if we can find somebody worse than ourselves, then that somehow gives us a get-out-of-prison-free card. And we're safe. And I like to be reminded of this. If ever there was someone, just think of this in your mind. Is there anyone that, judge, that deserves God's judgment? In your mind, I, I think of a number of historical figures. I'm not even sure they had mothers. Adolf Hitler, I really don't believe he had a mother. He, he was so wicked of a man. How could that be possible? But the reality of Romans chapter 5 tells us that God is just in placing all humanity, even me, the good neighbor, even the person that took back to $563, all of us under the judgment of God. Why? And there's a number of reasons why. I'll just give you one or two. I, I think number one, because we all share the same lineage. If you go and get a DNA test for your genealogy, your DNA and anybody's DNA in this room is 99% identical. You have a common ancestor. His name is Adam. His story and choices are told clearly and revealed in scriptures. Because Adam's sin, he plunged his entire lineage under the curse of sin. Ergo, God is just in placing them all under condemnation. God is just in placing them all under condemnation because of our individual decisions that we make. I was born with an evil nature, and I desire evil, and I perpetrate evil. Now, it may not be as evil as this guy's or not as evil as this lady's. And as a whole, it may not be evil enough that society will say of it that I was worthy of prison. But nonetheless, when compared to the holy, righteous God, God said of it, you've come short of the glory of God. So what is it that God really wants? I think you can summarize it and say it in this one word. He wants your communion and fellowship. But you and I are unworthy. We're not good enough. Solomon, the ancient king, put it this way. He said, hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments is the whole duty of man. Because God is just, he cannot commune with me, the unholy. Because God is holy and righteous, he cannot commune with me, a sinner, an enemy against God. All of my righteousness is as filthy rags, and that's the problem. Though he desires my fellowship and my communion, I am not good enough. I am destined for death. I am condemned under his very righteous law. But note, if you will, Romans chapter 5 again. I'm going to point out a series of verses, and you just catch your eyes on these. Look, if you will, in verse number 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. You look down in verse 15, you'll find that word gift. And the gift by much more the grace of God. You drop your eyes to verse 16. He talks about, but the free gift 
is of many offenses unto justification. Verse 17, the end of verse 17, the gift of righteousness. Verse number 18, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of it. Five times a reference to a marvelous gift. The gift is placed all the way back into verse number 8. But God, I was his enemy, unrighteous, a sinner, ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man would one dare to die. Scarcely for a good man would one man lay down his life. Yet God classified me not as righteous, nor as good, yet he. Verse number 8, while I was a yet sinner, God commended his love towards us. How? What was the gift? Christ died for us. You speak of friends and goodness. God died for you. Why? That was the penalty of my sin. We speak of what caused Jesus Christ to die on the cross of Calvary. We like to cast blame. Well, it was the Romans. Well, it was the Jews. You know why Christ hung on the cross of Calvary? Me. In the Gospel of Isaiah in the 53rd chapter, He bore my sins. That is the essence of the Gospel. The, the glorious passage there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He that knew no sin. He was God. He was eternal. He was uncorrupted. He was undefiled. He was perfect, holy, just, good. Became sin for us. That is, he bore our sin on the cross of Calvary. And the free gift of God is the payment of sin and the inheritance of of his nature, that is, that he has placed his righteousness and glory upon me, Second Corinthians chapter 5, and that I that knew no sin, or rather he that knew no sin, condemned for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The glorious expression. It's the free gift. My debt is paid. Now I can commune with him. But it is not a free gift that is given out universally in one sense that by that I mean that you just have it by nature of being part of humanity. You know, if you're going to have a gift, you're going to have to have a personal desire to want it. You know, we live in America, the land of the free and the home of so much stuff. And we're drawn to F-R-E-E. You know, my street... Almost every week, someone's got something for free outside. And there are inevitably, and there'd be a little value, but there's just something about free that gets hold to us. It's not universal. For some people, it might be this free thing or that free thing. But when you speak of the salvation of Jesus Christ, no one's ever interested in the salvation of Jesus Christ until they first have an expressive need, want for it. The salvation of Jesus Christ does not occur simply because you're part of the human race. It occurs because you see your deep need as being the enemy of God and a sinner, etc. When we see the need, we see God's payment and we then receive that free gift. 
That's what's mentioned in Romans chapter 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The belief in heart, it notes the fact of an expression of faith. The phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, denotes a grand distinction. It denotes conviction and a need to turn unto Him exclusively for salvation. There's the promise that thou shalt be saved. And that's an eternal promise. Once I have received this marvelous gift, I am His forever. That's a glorious truth. It's a stabilizing truth. There may be difficulties in your life that I could not even comprehend. And the reality is there are many difficulties that occur every day in the lives of individuals that I nor very few other people in life could ever remedy. My hands are not so strong. My mind is not so swift. My wallet is not so expansive that I can fix all the problems that plague. Yet Jesus Christ fixes man's greatest problem. What is that? His destiny. You could fix poverty tomorrow in America, but it wouldn't change man's destiny. Man's destiny, by virtue of being a descendant of Adam's race, has plagued him into eternity without God. And there will be many wealthy, many impoverished, that will go into a Christless eternity. But the only ones that will commune eternally with God are those that have received this remarkable, this eternal, this divine free gift of God. So I ask you this afternoon, this morning, God wants from you communion. Will you accept His free gift? The only means to that A stand for a Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.